Our gospel reading comes from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the gospel of the Lord. To you, O Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words. Just one verse this morning, even part of a verse. We thank you for what it means to a broken humanity. Lord, let it sink into us today and let us find true comfort. Let us find true satisfaction in you, Jesus, coming to us in flesh and blood, in order that you would save us. Clear our minds this morning and let your spirit work in our hearts, shape us and mold us and build us up in you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we celebrate this joyful Christmas season this weekend... I hope that you've been able to take a little bit of time away from some of the problems, some of the tensions and divisions that have been going on in this world. It's pretty difficult, of course, to do that, isn't it? Even for a few days. Since those divisions, those tensions that we've experienced throughout our world are so far-reaching and so long-standing. I mean, every, every since I was a kid... Um, I can remember presidential elections probably back into the late 60s, I guess. Almost every presidential election I can remember really has involved division over how the problems of our nation and how our world should be addressed, who should do it, and, and just exactly how they should be done. As the years have gone by, the animosity and the division 
between political parties, philosophies, and people groups has grown to sometimes outright and even blatant murderous hatred toward one another. And we've all experienced that. No, that's not an overstatement. But much of these tensions come from a dissatisfaction in our hearts. A dissatisfaction that we have with our current situation. And then also expectations that we place upon our elected officials. But also expectations that we place upon our our bosses. Upon our church leaders. Our families. Our community leaders. Now our science community, our medical community, our first responders. All these expectations and hopes for something better. Something to correct what is causing this unease in my heart. And now what we, what we hear, and you know, we're not in a political season right now, but what we usually hear is, is some famous person, usually a, a, a rich and famous person, who is saying if he's elected or if she's elected, that's it, I'm moving to Canada. And I guess Canada must be some utopia that we don't know about that has all the answers, because I guess that's the place to flee to. But um, I'm not sure that's true, though. But I get it. I understand what they're saying, and I think you do, too. We just want relief from the dissatisfaction. We just want relief in our hearts. We just want to feel something better. We want to feel something when, when our leaders aren't doing the job, no matter who the leaders are. Many of us are just seeking to have some relief with our current situation. Eugene Peterson uh, says this, We are people submerged in a culture swarming with lies and malice and feel as if we're drowning in it. We can trust nothing we hear and depend on no one we meet. That was Eugene Peterson from 1980. It's a long time ago. This quote continues. "Such Such dissatisfaction with the world as it is is preparation for traveling in the way of Christian discipleship. The dissatisfaction coupled with a longing for peace and truth can set us on a pilgrim path of wholeness in God. He's saying dissatisfaction can pave the way for a greater and deeper knowledge of Christ. So how's your level of dissatisfaction this morning? How's your level of dissatisfaction been this week, this year? This quote from Peterson came from a very popular book of his, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's a, it's a commentary on the Psalms of Ascent, which many of you probably know are uh, Psalms 120 through 134. And Psalm 120, we actually used it for one of our, uh, as an outline for one of our prayer meetings a couple months ago. It's the beginning psalm. It's the starting of a journey. And it's, the, it's describing this pilgrimage of God's people up to Jerusalem, up to the temple. Because when they traveled to Jerusalem, it was always up to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship and to feast with God's people. Now, for for the psalmist, this journey to Jerusalem starts with a sense of dissatisfaction. That's the context in which 
Peterson is writing this quote. It's starting with a sense of dissatisfaction, even fear for where they are living. Here's, as you know, Peterson paraphrased the Bible in in his version called The Message. Um, Sometimes it's very helpful. Sometimes uh, some people don't like it. But I like this here, uh, what he says in Psalm 120. This is a portion of Psalm 120. His paraphrase is this. I'm in trouble. I cry to God, desperate for an answer. Deliver me from the liars, God. They smile so sweetly, but lie through their teeth. I'm doomed to live in Meshech, cursed with a home in Kedar. My whole life lived camping among quarreling neighbors. I'm all for peace, but the minute I tell them so, they go to war. You see, there was even dissatisfaction with one another back then, of course. Throughout history, that's been the case for humanity. Think about the dissatisfaction, the grief, and the fear that people felt and experienced in the days when our Lord came. During the time of Christ's birth, to have some narcissistic, evil king like Herod who would send his soldiers out to kill babies, all because his throne might be threatened by one of them. Think of the cries for justice, the cries of grief, the hope for change. Some of you experienced violence in your lives. Some of you have experienced great injustices in your life to where you are crying out as well. What changes are you crying out for this morning? What dissatisfaction, what emptiness are you experiencing in your heart? Perhaps you want to move to Canada. Perhaps you want to move away from it all. Or perhaps there's no moving away because your grief and your dissatisfaction will just follow you there, wherever you go. Well, the good news that we have in this Christmas season, the good news that we have in this passage today or this verse is that there is hope. There's a hope that goes beyond our, sat- our dissatisfaction. Friday night, we looked at, at the beginning of John 1.14 where it says that Jesus or the word became flesh. He became one of us. Not only one of us, he became the poorest of the poor. He became an outcast. He became one of the poor outcasts of humanity, and he did that to show us that we matter. To show us that he created us, he loves us, and he didn't come as somebody rich and and sheltered and privileged. He came as somebody underprivileged, somebody who would be in the midst of his people. We saw that to become one of us, he freely chose to empty himself, as Paul says in Philippians 2. He emptied himself. He set aside all the wealth that he had, all of the privilege that he had, in order to make us one with himself. That's what it meant for him to become flesh and blood, to become one of us. All that he put aside for us. Today now we look at the next phrase in verse 14 where it says and dwelt among us. The word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. So we're going to look at two things. Don't even think this is going to be very long. We may get out of here at 11.45 today. I don't know. We're going to look at the meaning of what it means that he dwelt among us. And then we're going to look at the meaning of us, which could be a duh, but stick with me. He dwelt among us. God in the flesh dwelt among us. Now that word, I mentioned this in a previous sermon, but that word, that Greek word for dwelt, is the same word that's used in the Greek Old Testament for tabernacle. The word is skenao, and it it refers to Jesus tabernacling with his people. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, we actually talked about the tabernacle. And and the purpose of that tabernacle in the Old Testament, we see it in in Exodus 26 and on, where God gives the, the exact directions for how to build the tabernacle. And the purpose of the tabernacle was that he would dwell in the midst of the camp, that he would dwell in the midst of his people. And this is a beautiful thing. After he delivered them, he didn't leave them. He said, build this tabernacle and my presence will come down and will dwell with you. I will tabernacle with you. But there's something different about this presence of God and God coming in the flesh. See, as beautiful as that was, that was, that was amazing that Yahweh would come and, and be in the tabernacle and assure his people and protect his people and care for his people. But he wasn't making himself vulnerable then. He wasn't in danger of being hurt. He wasn't in danger of being tortured or killed. He wasn't in danger of just going out into everyday life and experiencing the hurts and the pains and the griefs of being out in humanity. But that was coming, and he knew it. That was coming. When Jesus tabernacled, when Jesus came and tabernacled with us, he did so as one of us, as flesh and blood, not a spirit, not somebody that looked like us, but as flesh and blood. He was with us as the tabernacle of God, as the one in whom the glory of God actually dwelt. The fullness of his radiance, he was the exact imprint of his nature, as Hebrews says in the beginning of Hebrews. He was the very presence of Yahweh with his people. But he was dwelling with them in everyday life. Open to the insults. Open to hunger. Open to grief. Open to sickness. Open to all kinds of things that we experience, that you and I experience. And we'll talk about that a little later. But next, we're going to look at what it means that he was dwelling amongst us. Well, the short answer of that is he was dwelling amongst his people. He was dwelling amongst humanity. He was here. But a little more detail on who us is, is that we're the dissatisfied. But not only are we the dissatisfied, he came to dwell among the dissatisfiers, the ones who are causing the dissatisfaction. Jesus came to the troubled, but he also came to the troublemakers. 
We are troubled, but we are also a part of this trouble because of the brokenness in our own hearts. We want to flee the dissatisfaction, the brokenness, but we are a part of it. See, there's only so far we could go from some of our troubles, but our troubles are going to follow us everywhere we go because of who we are. We're in broken bodies. Our relationships are full of brokenness, whether we like it or not. We live in broken communities. We elect broken leaders. We work for broken bosses. We live in broken families. We have a broken medical community, a broken first responder community, and we experience the results of that almost daily as, as the human race. We experience that because we are broken. But this is why Christ Jesus, this is why the word came in the flesh, because the need was there. He had to come to be like us, that he may heal the brokenness. Paul says in Romans 5, he says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Most of us in here are probably pretty familiar with that verse, but it's good to hear it and it's good to ponder it, to remember that when Christ saved you, if you are saved, if you are one with Christ, he saved you when you were a sinner, when you are completely alienated from him, enemies of God, Paul says. That's when he came. That's right where Jesus, God in the flesh, came to be. And what's really cool is he's not calling us to journey to him. Think about the psalm of ascents. The psalmist is saying, I look to the hills from where my help comes. Where does my help come from? He's, he's about to go on a journey where he's looking at the hills. and He's saying, where's my help come from? Well, it comes from the Lord. But I have this long, dangerous journey to go on my way up to Jerusalem. I can't wait to get there. But it's a long and dangerous journey as I, as I navigate these hills and perhaps run into criminals or, or foul weather or beasts or whatever. Because I'm going to Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't come calling us off to journey to him. As he waits in some far off safe place for us to make the journey. See, he made the journey to us. That's what coming in the flesh means. He came to us. He made the journey. He's the one who cast off his privileges. He's the one who cast off his wealth and made the journey to his people, to the broken world that wouldn't even accept him. And yet he did it. Paul's reminded of this. He came to Paul right in the midst of his murderous rebellion. He reminds, he tells Timothy of this. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Don't forget who you were. And don't forget who you are in Christ. This is who God is. This is who Jesus is. Remember, Sam reminded us last week that, he, that, that Jesus came into a war zone. He talked about the dragon. And Jesus came in the midst of a dragon wanting to consume him, to destroy him. And yet, he came, nevertheless. He made himself vulnerable. 
exposed to all that sinful humanity had to offer. Some of that was being well-loved, but also to be hated, to be abandoned by those closest to him, to be lonely, to be hungry, to be tested, to be tempted, to be tortured, and to finally be killed on a cross in such a violent way. But this was the plan. As weird as it may seem, if it's the first time you're hearing it, this was the plan. This is why the writer to the Hebrews says this in chapter 4, we do not have a high priest. Another, another function of Jesus is our high priest. And he says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what? So what does that do for us? He continues, so let us then with confidence. How is your confidence in drawing near to Christ when you're faced with your true self? And you see the darkness in you. And you see how easily you're led astray. How easily you're sucked into the vortex of sin when you know you shouldn't have done it. How easy is it to come before the throne of grace? Writer of Hebrews says, with confidence, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Because that's why he did this. So that we could draw near to him with confidence. And what he calls it is not the throne of judgment but the throne of grace. That we may receive, that you and I may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know why? Because a lot of our dissatisfaction is with our own selves. And you and I need this grace and this mercy every single day. We need to understand that that dissatisfaction with ourselves is never going to go away unless we come boldly to the throne of grace and ask Jesus to help us with this, to forgive us and to receive that forgiveness by faith. That's what's the challenge, is to receive his forgiveness, to receive his cleansing by faith, believing. But that's what he calls us to do. So Peterson says this, continuing on with this quote. A person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. A person needs to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice. Or some scientific breakthrough might save the environment. I'm adding a few things here. Might get rid of global warming. Or might cure COVID and eliminate diseases that cause us to shelter. Or that some pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility and peace we are not likely to risk 
the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has, got, has, has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she acquires an appetite for the world of grace. I agree with that, what Peterson says here. A dissatisfaction is a motivator to drive us, hopefully, to the throne of grace. Too many times it drives us to other things that only provide temporary comfort, that end up causing us to feel guilty later. What Christ is calling us to do, the reason why Christ came in the flesh, the reason why he dwelt among us and, 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 and went to the cross for us is so that we, in our dissatisfaction with ourselves and with our world, would come boldly to the throne of grace to receive the forgiveness that he has won for us. And remember, any sense of satisfaction we get, any sense, you might be living in a very satisfied state right now. I mean, right now, things are going okay for me. But what we've got to realize is just like the St. Louis weather. I remember moving here to St. Louis, and everybody said, you like the weather here? Well, just stick around. It'll change. And that's just true. That's just true. Life is beautiful many times, but the satisfactions are temporary. Until we truly recognize and acknowledge that this world really has no real satisfaction, brothers and sisters. No real satisfaction to offer us. Whether you've ever heard of Christ or whether you have been with Christ for years, we will never receive what Jesus has to offer us by faith if we do not realize that the satisfactions of this world are temporary at best. But unlike the psalmist, we no longer need to leave our mess and journey to the temple in Jerusalem because the temple came to us. Because the temple made the journey to us. The temple, Jesus, that tabernacle, came to us right where we are, right in our mess. Even when we were yet sinners, even when we were yet rebellious, blasphemous, haters, racists, and bigots. That's who he came to. We're his mission. He offers a hope with or without the satisfactions of this life. And he offers a hope that goes far beyond this fleeting life that we're living now. A hope that we can truly count on. A hope that depends on no one else. Where's the satisfaction you're seeking today? It may be pretty wonderful, but ask yourself, how long will it last? How long will the satisfaction I'm seeking actually last? May we receive the grace and truth of the Savior who came to us, who will never leave us, never forsake us, will not allow a hair on our head to be damaged without the Father's knowledge. May we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and may we receive his forgiveness his cleansing, and his satisfaction. Call upon him and draw near to the throne of grace. May we do that in Christ's name. Amen.